The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P. Nate, Elder P, Wetsy on the dials, and a special guest, President and Co-Founder Scott Hayward from Right Now is here with us in Garage Mahal. We bagged his head. We dragged him out to the secret location, <laughs> so he can't uh, can't find his way back. I won't. I won't tell the secrets. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he's yeah. sworn to secrecy. Yeah, uh, yeah. but he's here with us today to tell us a little bit about his foundation and just talk about this very pressing issue in our culture of abortion and the right to life and all these things. So I'm gonna pass it over to Nate just to tell us who we are. We're the Rebel Podcast. We're on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Best way to get in touch and follow our content is actually to download the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. It's the best way just because content can sometimes get choked and and sometimes get uh, canceled. That's the best way to follow our content. There's lots of great podcasts on the network, both on the American and the Canadian side. You can go to our Patreon, Patreon slash Reform Rebel and all that kind of stuff. But I just kind of want to tee this up. So Providentially, we're here recording today on February 1st, which also happens to be a day when coming out of uh, the Montreal news. So here in Canada, some of our American listeners might not be familiar with this, but I think we're only with North Korea because even China has recently changed some of its abortion yeah, laws. Yeah. So it's just us in North Korea That's right. that have no abortion laws at all. So Canada and North Korea are the two countries that have absolutely no abortion laws. That makes sense. Like we're led by Trudeau. They're led by yeah, you know, whatever that guy's name on both is. Sides. So it's like the three most evil men in the world, right? <laughs> well, and so I just say that to say the news coming out of Montreal today is that a woman went in 38 weeks pregnant for an abortion that was performed in Montreal. We were talking about that a little bit before the mics went on. And I mean, this is why your organization is so important, Scott, is because this stuff really does happen. I think a lot of Canadians are ignorant to the realities of late-term abortions. And we would say, we would affirm that life begins at conception and all abortion is evil and wicked. However, I think that even the vast majority of Canadians who might have followed the lie and been caught up in the lies of the media in terms of clump of cells arguments and all that kind of stuff would still disagree that you should not be aborting a 38-week-old baby, and yet that's what happened today in Montreal. So I just want to highlight that that news story because it brings a sort of sobering, solemn reality to what we're about to talk about. So so tell us a little bit of what is right now, exactly what would you guys call it? I know it's not a ministry, but it's a political movement. It's a grassroots organization. How would you describe right now? Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's providential because there's a lot of things happening today in this moment here on February 2nd. Oh, there <laughs> you go. I, the you podcast. guys both look it's funny. It's Day, so we're going to repeat this again and <laughs> I'm again. So, I'm, <laughs> I'm super happy he was the one that corrected you. I was sitting there like, how do I get that in? Yeah, yeah. no, oh, I'll yeah, just, I'll just, yeah. I'll I appreciate that. Yeah, jump right I'm not, in there. not above correction. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. Anyway, yeah, so our organization right now, we exist solely to nominate and elect pro-life politicians federally and provincially right across Canada. And I guess you could call it an advocacy group. We're not a ministry because we're not attached to any religious organization. We're certainly not a foundation because we don't have charitable status because there's no way that we're going to get charitable status <laughs> you wouldn't get it. to do that. And I would know because I used to audit charities back in, way back <laughs> in the day. So yeah, our sole focus is on nominating and electing pro-life politicians federally and provincially across Canada because it's at those two levels of government here in Canada where we can actually enact legislation to reduce the abortion and assisted suicide rates in Canada. Like you were mentioning today, right off the top of the show here, yeah, unfortunately, it sounds like that 
A mother went into a hospital in downtown Montreal today to abort her 38-week-old girl or boy, which is very late in pregnancy for yeah. a, like a lot of people don't know, like you're you're in your last month of pregnancy there. Yeah. And it sounds like from what I can gather that it, it's not for, you know, the life of the mother or something like that. I, I would suspect that deep in the pregnancy, I would not be surprised if, and I'm speculating here, right? I have no yep. information on this. That there might be, you know, some coercion happening there, because if you're that late in your pregnancy as a woman, like, obviously there's something deep down inside that has there's caused you to not physiologically. Yeah, no. that has caused you to not go for an abortion earlier on. So I'm sure it's sadness upon sadness. And you're right. This is this is why we exist because these laws not only protect preborn girls and boys, but a lot of women who, frankly, are coerced into making these horrible, awful uh, decisions. So. That's why our organization exists, and, and that's what we do. We're not just an advocacy group, but we're like you said, we're a grassroots movement as well because we try to build up databases of pro-lifers right across Canada and get them connected to pro-lifers who are wanting to run for public office to help them with their nomination, to help them with their election door knocking and, and things of this nature. And over the last number of years, we've been very, very successful at that. Yeah. Tech Guy Dave over there was actually the one who uh, who made us aware of your organization. And what was interesting that I found in kind of just going on and, and first looking at what you guys were doing is this is not... Maybe some of our listeners might picture as they go by, if they're in the States, maybe go by an abortion clinic or a Planned Parenthood here in Canada. Sometimes you'd be going by a hospital and you'll see sort of the life chain or the the pro-life advocates out there. And in all honesty, a lot of the people who are out there are sort of old gray folks with their, you know, pray to end abortion signs and God bless them for their faithfulness. But this was really an organization of high school and university students. Like that's where the movement started. My colleague Alyssa and I, when we first started it, back in uh, 2016, so what, it's 2023 now, so that's yeah, seven, seven years, years ago. ago. You're a little older, yeah. older now. We're not talking to a high school student <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, you know, relatively fresh out of university, a few years out of university, and, and when her and I started, and she's around my age too, it was just the two of us. And yeah, it's grown to include a lot of young people, but there's, there's people all ages from all walks of life in our 30,000 plus database right across Canada. So that's something important to highlight. But to build upon what you were saying, it's more than just, you know, going out there with signs to, to protest or to have silent witness. And, and you know, that's important too, because personally, you know, I'm a big believer in prayer. And so I've participated in, you know, the 40 days for life and yep. that's coming up beginning of Lent here. But correct me if I'm wrong, this is a religious podcast, right? So it is. I that's... go to uh, the Epistle of St. James, particularly the second chapter where it talks about in like, what, seven or eight different verses, faith and works. You got to work, right? And, yeah, and faith work, without works is dead, right? And working is rolling up your sleeves. And, you know, a lot of people out there, rightfully so, complain about a lot. Of, and we can get into that a little bit later. Politicians, especially current politicians in Canada, not all of them, mind you, but a lot of them that are either disinterested in this issue or aggressive on the other side of this issue. And the only way that you're going to change it in addition to your prayers is by getting out there and helping people that you are aware of who are pro-life to make sure they win those nominations, going out and selling memberships in the nomination process to family members, fellow churchgoers, things of this nature. So it's taking that, if you're doing your silent witness, prayerful witness a couple times a year, taking it to that next level and saying, okay, let's, let's ramp this up here. That made me think about, just as you were talking there, is uh, in, I think it's Matthew 9, Jesus says to his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the harvest or is bountiful. The, the laborers are few. That's right. And then what happens in Matthew chapter 10 is he sends out his disciples. So it's like in, in, in Matthew chapter 9, he says, pray that we send out workers. And then he sends them out. Like It's like sometimes God calls you to be the answer to your own prayers by rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. Yeah, right? it's so funny you mention that because sometimes when we send out a, an e-blast or text blast saying, hey, we have this candidate running in your riding for this nomination, can you help us with a couple hours of phone calls or a couple hours of door knocking over the next month? And they'll say, well, you know, I don't have time, but I'll pray about it. And listen, sometimes people are maybe a little bit older in their life and that season or life has passed and they just don't have the physical ability to do that. That's fine. Or, you know, you're a mother or father with six kids at home and it's too busy and you're in that season of life. That's fine too. But that's not the majority of us. And I like to answer people back. Well, Good for you. That's great that you're praying. And guess what? I have good news for you because you can just go look in the mirror and there's the answer to your prayers right there. there. That's a good answer. Yeah. Okay. I just want to ask some questions that might be floating around in our listeners' heads. The idea of voting in pro-life candidates is Mm -hmm. not a new idea. 
right? So we've been thinking about this forever. What makes you guys different and what's different about the strategy? Because we've all said that before. Oh yeah, let's get the right candidates on board. We've been thinking about this. And, and if I was to ask people, how are we going to change the laws in Canada? A lot of people would say, well, you got to get pro-life politicians elected. Mm-hmm. What's different about what you guys are doing? The big difference between what our organization has been trying to do and has been doing successfully for the last, you know, five, six, seven years compared to like the 40 years before that is, and this is the accountant coming out of me because that's my professional background. I'm, I'm a CPA, chart professional accountant, is making sure that for every dollar as a movement and every hour as a movement that we invest in to the political pro-life movement, we get the highest return on investment back. So that means that we're going to do things that make sense. We're going to do things that are going to result in wins. For example, making sure that when we find a candidate, it's a well-rounded pro-life candidate. It's a candidate that has a decent background that's willing to put in the effort. It's a candidate that if they're married, their spouse is on board. I have uh, t- not many, mind you, but I've had to tell a couple candidates because their spouse wasn't on board, it's not going to work out. Like that, the whole family has yeah. to be on board. It's not worth the marriage breaking up or anything like that. And frankly, you're not going to do a great job if your that's, spouse isn't yeah. on board. So it's being intelligent in that way because if we want to present a candidate to a database of pro lifers in a certain riding, we want to make sure that we're going to have the highest possible range of success. So it's very simple things. It's no secret formula. It's just that this wasn't being done in Canada. It was going out there, building a database of pro-lifers, which there are literally millions of us across Canada. As a quick aside, you know, you look at most polling in Canada on the abortion question, and somewhere between 15 and 20% of people typically answer they're 100% pro-life. So you extrapolate mm. that across 40 million people, that's 6 million Canadians. And our goal between now and 2030 is to identify with their names, numbers, and addresses, and email addresses too, a thousand pro-lifers in each of the 338 ridings across Canada. That's you know well under 6 million people. You're talking about 5%. And with a thousand pro-lifers in a database in each riding, like you can really make some damage. So it's very simple. It's it's building up the database, informing them how the process works, how simple it is for people to buy membership, help a couple hours of calling or door knocking. And then that's when the winds come in. And once the winds start rolling in and people's minds are kind of open to it and they were part of the process, they come back again and again and again and again, which is really great because they want to rack up winds more and more and more. I love hearing stats. People like stats because it seems like well-researched strategy going forward. And so what you just said 6 million, 100% pro-life Canadians, according to the polls. Right. What would that do to our elections if 6 million Canadians voted in every election for a pro-life candidate? The important thing is getting a pro-life candidate on the ballot, right? Right. So where we get the biggest bang for our buck as a pro-life movement is the nomination process that happens before an election. So just a quick civics lesson here. I think a lot of people might wonder, like, how does that name get comma conservative behind it or comma liberal behind it? So each political party in Canada that is running candidates will have what's called a nomination meeting in that particular riding prior to that election or by-election. Every person who is a member of the party in that riding has the right to vote in that nomination for a variety of different candidates. So the key for us is to make sure that we build up a database in that riding. We find a pro-life candidate to run for that party's nomination in that riding, that the people that we have identified in the database are emailed, text, called, door-knocked to buy a membership in that party to vote for that pro-life candidate and then show up on nomination meeting day. And most nomination meetings have a few hours, like you're in and out, you vote. That's where we get the biggest bang for our buck. So 6 million Canadians voting for pro-life candidates. Unfortunately, we don't have a winnable pro-life candidate in every riding. But if we had 6 million pro-life Canadians in our database, or even just 5% of that, that's where the change comes in. And we've seen this in other countries like the United States. We're starting to see it across the pond in the United Kingdom. We've seen it in countries come out of Soviet communism, like Poland, like Hungary. The advantage that we have in Canada is that we have the Westminster parliamentary system. So that's an advantage we have over the Americans. And the advantage that we have over the British, for example, is that we basically more or less have a very close system to the American primary system where it's very easy to join a political party and get involved. Like, for example, for the Liberals, the NDP, and the Conservatives federally, you don't even have to be a citizen of the Canadian Crown to be a member of the party and vote. You can be a permanent resident and you can be as young as 14. And that's a huge advantage to the pro-life community, especially in places like the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area and Metro Vancouver. 
Interesting. So you said that our system is more advantageous for us. Why? How is our system more advantageous <laughs> even than, than the states? Because I think a lot of Canadians, specifically, I would say conservative Canadians, look at the states and say, oh, man, we don't have their system. And we're at a disadvantage because we don't have the same rights embedded into a document like they do. So in terms of the issue that we're talking about, how is our system advantageous? Yeah, so getting a little bit into the weeds here, the jurisprudence first off between the two countries is massively different. So a lot of people look at Roe v. Wade, right? And then they look at the Dobbs decision yep. that happened this past June to basically get rid of Roe v. Wade, the Roe v. Wade decision, and they look with envy down there, and that's fine, and that's great for the Americans to get rid of that. In Canada, with our jurisprudence in just over 35 years ago, this past January, at the end of January in 1988, there was the Morgenthaler decision where Dr. Henry Morgenthaler challenged the existing law as was passed in 1969 by the Pierre Trudeau liberals, the existing abortion law that is, all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled in favor of Morgenthaler, but if you read the actual decision, not in the way that necessarily Dr. Morgenthaler wanted. What the Supreme Court ruled was this law that currently stands doesn't apply evenly across Canada because what happened was they replaced the 1869 abortion law in the Criminal Code of Canada, which just outlawed abortion outright, with a law that said, okay, you want an abortion, you go to what's called a therapeutic abortion committee set up at each hospital, made of three physicians, you make your case, and if two of the three physicians say, okay, you can have an abortion, then you can have an abortion. Well, some hospitals, for example, in downtown Montreal, which should be no yep. surprise now today, you yep. know, 50, 60, 70 years later, they were basically just rubber stamps. Whereas in a place like Prince Edward Island, there wasn't a single hospital that had a therapeutic abortion committee because they absolutely refused to even consider it. So the Supreme Court said, whatever law you parliament come up with, whether it's a complete ban on abortion or you allow abortion all the way for nine months, like they just passed in California, for example, or somewhere in between, it has to apply evenly across the dominion. And so they struck down the law and they said, Parliament, you come up with a law. And for the last 35 years, we haven't. So unlike Roe v. Wade, which read a right to abortion into the American Constitution, at least temporarily for 50 years, in Canada, they never did that. They never read a right to abortion into the Constitution. Many of the justices that ruled in that 5-2 decision on the majority side said it's absolutely proper for Parliament to come up with some sort of law to protect preborn children. So that's one advantage is our jurisprudence. The second advantage is that in Canada, there's only two houses of parliament where we need to pass legislation, which is the House of Commons and the Senate. Rarely does the Senate ever overrule the House of Commons. And if so, you'll see a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And usually the Senate does back down, typically. That doesn't mean that they have to. And the powers of cabinet, the powers of the prime minister through orders in council are much, much more advantageous than even the presidential executive orders. And then if you do get a pro-life majority in both houses of parliament, being the houses of common and the Senate, you don't have to worry about a presidential veto like they do in the United States. In the right. United States, you need that trifecta. You have to have a majority, a pro-life majority, not a Republican majority, a pro-life majority in the House of Commons, in the Senate, and you have to have a pro-life president in the White House all at the same time tremendously, tremendously difficult. So now down there, it's devolved to the states. Here in Canada, when you talk about criminal legislation, it's at the federal level, not the provincial level. So those are some of the advantages we have. And that's why I believe that our struggle to have pro-life legislation in Canada federally that would significantly reduce the abortion-insisted suicide rates is going to be much more truncated in terms of time struggle compared to our cousins down in the United States. That was a great answer. That was very thorough. I would say on a podcast like ours, we talk about politics quite often, and I would say that there's been a shift in a lot of our thinking with everything that went down through COVID and some of the human rights violations and, and some of the things that were happening at that time. I think a lot of Canadians are displaced in their political allegiances mm -hmm. right now. And you saw the PPC, I know they didn't get any seats, but the amount of votes that they got, just sheer votes across Canada during the last federal election and the uptick that they had in the polls from one to the next was just astronomical. So I use that only as an example to say, I think that there's a real displacement in terms of people's political allegiances. So what I haven't heard you say at all is the party that you guys work with, because you guys are nonpartisan. You That's guys right. are focused on the life issue, yep. regardless of political lines. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we are a nonpartisan organization, so we're going to focus on the lowest hanging fruit. 
And if you look at the House, of, like, like we were just talking about, right, we need pro-life majority in the House of Commons. So currently in the House of Commons, there are 338 seats, which means if you want a majority on anything to pass anything whenever you want, you need 170. So our perspective is that we need 170 pro-life members of parliament, not 170 conservatives, not 170 liberals. Could all 170 pro-lifers eventually be conservatives? That's a tall order. Like, 155 of those 170 probably pro-lifers could be conservatives, but like all of them being conservatives, that's a tall order. So you look at a legislative body like the House of Commons in Canada and you see five or six different political parties represented in the House at any given time, whether or not they have party status in the House of Commons, as opposed to the House of Representatives in the United States, or even to a lesser extent, the House of Commons in the United Kingdom in Westminster. So we are going to need a smattering of pro-lifers from other political parties. But we are not, as an organization, because this gets back to the return on investment, we are not going to focus our time and efforts on political parties, even if they are pro-life or very friendly to pro-lifers, that do not have any sort of mathematical or statistical probability of winning a seat, because that doesn't reduce the abortion rate quickly enough for us. There are times where, during an election campaign, where we might recommend to our supporters in a particular riding that, hey, your most winnable pro-life candidate happens to be the PPC candidate, even though they're polling at 2%. This was the case for me personally. In the last federal election in 2021, I didn't have a pro-life conservative candidate in my uh, riding of uh, <laughs> Hamilton East Stony Creek, so I voted PPC. Now, we don't recommend typically that people would go and vote for your most winnable pro-life candidate, even they are maybe pulling a 2%, maybe is the PPC candidate in your riding. But if they're pulling that low, we're not going to say to you, go and knock on doors and phone call for them. We're going to say, hop in your car and drive 20 minutes over to the next county, to the next riding, where maybe there's a pro-life conservative candidate that's in a dogfight at 35% tied, and that extra couple hours of door knocking can really make the difference. Over there, right? Yes, exactly. Interesting. So a couple nitty-gritty questions. One of my greatest frustrations, and I typically get together with, especially for federal elections, because this is such a near and dear topic to my heart, I typically get together with every candidate in my riding and ask them the same question. If you were elected, would you work with a constituent in your riding to put forward anti-abortion legislation? And what's interesting is that you would have guys who, and women, you would have politicians who would say that they're pro-life and yet still be unwilling to fight for it when they actually get in. How do you guys hold politicians to their commitments? Because that's been one of our greatest problems is you could look back at some of the people who have held seats and done nothing for the pro-life cause, even though they say they're pro-life. Yeah, I know that's a great question. So that's great that you do that work, by the way. And hopefully you share your results. Yeah, that I you always find. put it up on social yeah, media. Yeah, 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 <laughs> far and wide. So that's the work that we do. We're paid as full-time employees to do is to do that research and reach out. And we reach out to every candidate. We give every candidate I'll take an just opportunity. a little stipend and I'll give I mean, you my... No, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you'd be surprised what we found. Like in 2019, we found some pro-life green candidates in Quebec. Wow. Because within the Green Party, and I think we saw this during the COVID restrictions, you have a strong, which makes sense, naturalist movement within the Green Party of Canada politically that are against abortion right from conception onward against assisted suicide because these are not natural interventions, let's say, into the life of a human being, whether it be the mother or the preborn girl or boy. It's good to do that work because you make those connections and you find that information and and we want to spread the pro-life message far and wide and and all political parties, especially ones that elect members to the House of Commons. So that's great work that you do there. That's part of what we do. I guess in terms of like keeping people accountable, we don't really care for a candidate if they're personally pro-life or not. I don't know if I go this far, but like, hey, if there's someone who describes himself as pro-choice, but they keep voting for our pro-life legislation in the House of Commons, and they have a 100% pro-life voting record, then I'm going to do everything in my power to get that person re-elected. Because that's the votes in the House that counts. That's what I care about. Now, beyond that, yeah, it'd be great to have members of parliament, members of provincial parliament, MLAs, whatever, not just have pro-life votes, but actually get involved. And there's a lot of MPs that do do this for the record in Ottawa, where we identify a candidate who is pro-life, who is running for a nomination, let's say, for the Conservative Party of Canada in especially a winnable riding, because there's a group of pro-life MPs on the Hill, we'll let them know, like, hey, 
uh, this candidate's running for this nomination. Can you help them out? And they'll send out public endorsements. They'll come down and door knock with them. They'll say, I know these connections in this riding, uh, connect them and help them out. And they'll basically have created buddy systems over the past couple mm. of elections where they guide them through. And that's why we've gone from 40 pro-life MPs being elected in 2015, which we lost half in that election. Yep. So 40 to 68 to even under Aaron O'Toole, which is shocking, we increased that to <laughs> 74. And so we keep on going. Now I believe there's over 80 members of parliament in the House of Commons out of 338 that have a 100% pro-life voting record. Wow. So, so it, 90 to go. Yeah, well, that, that's the way I look at it. I do look at it half empty because I'm not satisfied until that glass is full. And nor should anyone else listen to this podcast think that way either. So that's one way in terms of like, I care about how you are going to cast your vote in the House of Commons or Legislative Assembly provincially. That's how we determine whether or not we're going to support you. And then beyond that, if you don't do that, which we haven't had that happen, by the way, because I think we're very honest and upfront right off the get-go. And to be frank, I have had people who I think abhor abortion in almost all circumstances who are wanting to run for public office, wanting to run for a nomination, and we do the interview process. And when that question comes, they do squirm. And I have that conversation with them afterwards saying, like, I can't support you unless you're 100% behind this. And they say, Scott, I'm being honest with you. I don't think I can say yes or no. And I say, I appreciate your honesty, right? We save a whole lot of headache by doing that stuff up front Absolutely. as opposed to yeah. afterward. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that it's all carrot. There is some stick there too. And we have had to bring it out from time to time. So a good example of this is Leela here, who is a United Conservative Party of Alberta MLA, member of the Legislative Assembly for the Provincial Legislature in Alberta. She represents a riding just east of Calgary called Chesmere Strathmore. So a suburban riding, a little bit rural, mostly suburban, a very safe riding for the UCP and not at all pro-life, ran for the UCP leadership, did very poorly. And it obviously came out during the leadership that she's very much not pro-life. So we found a pro-life candidate to run for her nomination because in Alberta, you have to get re-nominated even mm -hmm. though you're elected, kind of like the primary system in the United States. Again, this is the advantage we have in Canada versus the United Kingdom. We sold a bunch of memberships, knocked on doors, all that type of stuff. And Leela was so terrified of our candidate, the young female pro-life candidate. And I think the the crux of it is that each political party in each riding has a board of directors. So federally, they're known as electoral district associations. These board of directors are elected by party members at every annual general meeting, which of course happens once a year. They run the affairs of the party within that riding. Basically, it's to get their candidate elected. There were 30 members of her, what's called an Alberta Constituency Association Board of Directors. She had 30 people run for the board. We had 30 people run for the board. All 30 of ours won from a, a margin of nine to one. So oh, she got wow. terrified and she didn't even bother running for the nomination, just resigned. So this is how <laughs> we can keep people accountable as well. Right. So, and that's with a lot less than a thousand people identified in that riding, which is still our goal. Most federal ridings have a hundred thousand people. You're talking about 1% of the population, which is a very reasonable goal to get. So Again, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, 6 million pro-life Canadians, what are the difference you can make? Well, you can terrify people to resigning their job. <laughs> Pretty lickety yeah. split. That's awesome. I love that story. So just so everybody knows, Scott's not sitting here with a, with a laptop in front of him. He's, he's, he's throwing all this out <laughs> off the top of his head. So that's super impressive. And so people who want to benefit from the mm -hmm. research that you've done, how does somebody go on and find voting records and things like that so that they can be as informed as they possibly can if they want to get involved in this issue? Yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate the plug. I don't know if that was meant to be a plug, but I'm going to take advantage of it go anyway. Go for it. Do it. Yeah. So our <laughs> website is www.itstartsrightnow.ca. And if you go there right away, and I, we designed it purposely for this, if that's the first time you visit our website, immediately it'll say, hey, do you want to join us? And entering your email, your information there. It's really, really important that when you're entering in your information that at the very least to put in your postal code. Because with the database system that we pay a good amount of money for every month, it will automatically take your postal code and link you to your federal and provincial riding so we don't have to do that work. And when a nomination it comes up or when an election comes up for your riding, so you're not getting information about every single riding out there yep. for your riding, you're getting an email or a text saying here is our recommendation for the riding. And it might include voting records if there are voting records relevant for that election. You're not typically going to see 
especially during election time, us advertise these election records because of different laws that were passed by the Liberals toward the end of May and June of 2019 that amended the uh, Canada Elections Act. So we have to be a little bit intelligent about that, and Mm -hmm. we are, and we've been able to operate just fine. So that's the important thing is to give us your contact information so that we can contact you. And Tech Man Dave here has been in our database for quite some time, and he could probably attest that. I would say we don't inundate you guys with emails and text blasts and stuff like that. Like, you're going to get an email from us when it's relevant. You might get, like, a fundraising email here and there, or just, like, here's this interesting story or things like that. But it's not going to be, you know, multiple times a week outside of an election or nomination period. Right. One of the other questions I wanted to ask when I was just saying, like, just practically speaking is... So you have an issue of, I would call it just cowardice on the account of a lot of politicians who maybe won't vote their conscience once they actually get elected. And we talked about that a little bit. But the other thing is, and we saw this a little bit with uh, Trudeau's liberals, is that if he starts talking about sort of towing the party line. Mm -hmm. So because you're not partisan, you'll work with any candidate whose voting record or lack thereof, if they're a new but zealous pro-life candidate, they might come in and then just because the party is so anti uh, anti life, I would say, they might fall into this category of being told to fall into line. How do you combat that when there's a there's a clear ideology of a party, but you're dealing with the individuals within it? They fear us more than they fear them. Oh, nice. Because if they're not going to vote pro-life, and that's the reason why they got nominated, they won that nomination, and we got them elected the first time, and I have come across this a couple times, granted, not often, I have told them in the past, well, you can go to Aaron O'Toole and you can ask him for door knockers, but you're not getting any of ours. Hmm. And that changes things pretty, pretty quick. Now, this is few and far in between because the vast majority of the people we get elected are true believers on this issue. Right. And I don't know if I'm going to make this like an R-rated podcast or not, but Do it. they don't give a shit about what the party says. Right. They just don't. And they don't have to fear us right? because they're with us because they're one of us. And that's been great to see, and there's been great pushback. Now, I'm talking specifically within the Conservative Party of Canada. There's a long road ahead to get us to that point within the NDP and the Liberals and our organization, and that mission, that work, might outlive my time with right now because I definitely don't want to have Founders Syndrome with the organization either, Hmm. but that is where that needs to go. That is, I would say, a mistake that the American pro-lifers have made down in the United States is they haven't done enough of the hard work within the Democratic Party, and they've just kind of ceded that work, not to say that they've completely made everything lock and tight with every Republican Party in every state, but they've done great strides, and maybe that is part of what they are going to do down there I don't exactly know. I mean, I am in contact with some of them some of the time, but it's not all the time because our systems are so incredibly different. But I would say like 98% of the people that we find to run that get elected that are in there, they're always going to vote the right way. It's never going to be an issue of dealing with the whip of the party or anything like that because they are one of us. And the one or two times where I've had to kind of pull out that stick and say, well, you know, you want to go that way, then you can ask the party for those door knockers because I'm not giving you any. You know, the conversation turns pretty quick on that. So it seems like one of the things that I guess has led to the success of your movement then is the zeal of the people who have attached themselves to it. It seems like when you have people who are willing to go door knocking and all that kind of stuff, it seems like you're actually attracting not just people who are politically engaged, but people for whom the life issue is a big issue. Yeah, I would say that's fair. And, you know, to be frank, over the last, I would say, two years has been big challenges for our organization and other organizations within the pro-life sphere because there have been other issues that have have really taken over priority in people's lives, personally, specifically with the COVID restrictions. And not everyone in our 30,000-plus database was 100% on the same page when it came to that. Uh, But I would say probably the vast majority, like 80% plus, especially toward the end, probably even higher than that, were on the same page with that. And I understand and I can appreciate it and I can appreciate the pushback against it. And I was glad to see it and, you know, I was part of it and I have no problem saying this. Like, it was difficult for us because I couldn't travel because the government deemed me unclean. Um, <laughs> so, so you're, you know, you're among unclean I, was, friends yeah, here. I was in the thick of it. But yeah, unfortunately, I would say not for all of our supporters, but for a lot of our supporters, that 
temporarily overtook it as their number one political issue. Now coming out of it, like we didn't see any further restrictions come back in the autumn. I don't think we'll see them ever again until there's an, like an actual pandemic that occurs. But now I think people are refocused again. Mm. And now stories are starting to percolate both on the abortion and assisted suicide front. So what happened in Montreal this morning, very, very dark. I think that moves a lot of our supporters. And we've seen ever since... Really, just before Christmas, all these stories coming of all these people applying for government assistance and dying because yeah. you're not getting government assistance any other way unless you want to kill yourself. You know, whether it be veterans or it be people that struggle with homelessness or mental health issues or now minors, not people who are getting potash, but minors as in people under the age yeah. of 18. I think it's reinvigorated a lot of our people and. Uh, we're getting into a season now where nominations are going to start happening, especially in Alberta and Manitoba provincially, because they have those elections this year. Nominations are starting to happen federally because an election probably at earliest autumn next year. But hey, that's still like only 18 months away. So and now we can actually our organization, we're actually able to get out there again. I'm here in studio with you guys today. So I think people are starting to come back and roll up their sleeves and get back to it. So yeah, I would say for a lot of our people, that is a very, very top of mind issue. I think a lot of people who maybe aren't necessarily pro-abortion, but just kind of laissez-faire, let's say, in our issue within the Conservative Party of Canada, mistakenly would describe a lot of our supporters as one-issue candidates or one-issue voters. And they're not one-issue candidates or one-issue voters. They're number one-issue candidates, number one-issue voters. There's a whole slew of issues after that number one issue that they care about. But if you don't meet that first criterion of, hey, let's not kill girls in the womb because they're girls, if you can't make that basic criterion, then I don't really care about the other issues you have to say, even though, yeah, they are issues number two, three, four, or five, or whatever for me, you can't yeah. meet that number one. I'm on to the We're PPC candidate. I'm two. on to yeah. the PPC candidate, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. we often say there's a hundred criminals to be hung. One has to get hung first. One has to get hung last. So for voting, I always say like, well, yeah, we might disagree on what the number two and three are, but if babies are being killed, we need to hang that criminal first. Like, yeah. so like we'll figure out Deal with that issue all first. the other things once we get that issue sorted. I have a bit of a different question though, because I think there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast and would know. Canada has no laws for abortion. What are our laws, though, for assisted suicide? So, That's a good question. I remember during, right, almost right at the beginning of the pandemic, getting a flyer. I, I live in a liberal area in London, and it had mentioned in there that they had passed an assisted suicide bill in that, yeah, in the, right in the, the COVID lockdowns. And I was like, how are they even doing that? Yeah. So educate us a little bit of, like, what is the law about that? So I'll kind of back up a little bit about how this came to be in Canada when it comes to government assistance and dying assisted suicide, there was a decision coming up to the Supreme Court of Canada called the Carter decision, which basically challenged the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in 1993 in the Rodriguez decision, which was a 9-0 decision back in 1993 saying, yeah, we're not striking down that portion of the criminal code that criminalizes assisted suicide. So the Carter decision, Beverly McLaughlin was chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time. That was a 9-0 decision. All nine justices ruled in that case, and they only had one written decision. Oftentimes, in a lot of Supreme Court cases, you might have like a 5-4 decision or like a 6-3 decision, but not all six justices that were part of the majority are going to write one majority case. You might have two or three write one, one write on their own, the rest write another. This was all nine justices, and every single one of those justices had written the same thing together on Carter, which struck down the provision within the criminal code that criminalized assisted suicide. The thing that I want to point out about that is that five or six, at least five of those nine justices were appointed by Stephen Harper. Hmm. So even when conservatives were in power, they weren't actually appointing like actual philosophical conservatives to the highest bench, yeah, judicial really bench in Canada. So that's why as voters, you have to have not unreasonable demands, but very specific demands. And that would include who are you appointing to the Supreme Court of Canada, to the Tax Court of Canada, to our appellate courts, all that type of stuff. So anyway, Carter reversed this. They said, Parliament, you have six months to come up with a law, and the law has to have these parameters. So unlike the Morgenthaler decision, which said, Parliament, you come up with a law, here's some suggestions. In indefinite time. Indefinite time, which frankly is proper. Like, Morgenthaler is good jurisprudence when you actually read through the case. Hmm. It actually makes sense. The side effect of it is unfortunate. 
In Carter, all nine justices said, this law is unconstitutional. It is now gone because we said so, which is questionable at that. And then you have to have a law, uh, come up with a law. And if you don't come up with a law in the next six months, this is the provision that we're putting in place, which was very, very liberal, very aggressive. So when the liberals won the election in 2015, they asked for an extension. They got an extension from the court. And actually, uh, Dr. Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, who are two names that probably won't be unfamiliar to a lot of your right. uh, listeners because they were ejected from Trudeau's cabinet then caucus because they dare thought different, especially when it came to obstruction of justice of SNC-Lavalin. Those two, from my understanding, from what I heard on the scuttlebutt on the Hill, were the strongest in cabinet to have at least some sort of provision around government assistance and dying, medical really? assistance and dying, assisted suicide. So the provisions that were put mm. in place were actually stronger than what the Supreme Court wanted, which was you have to have an irredeemable actual medical situation where you are going to die. It is terminal. It is foreseeable. There has to be like two or three different doctors, physicians that approve it. You can't have people that are attached to the executor of your will and final estate testament or anything like that to be part of the decision for obvious reasons. Like you yep. can't just kill off grandpa to get the money type thing. Then even then, I would suggest that that's still not good enough because the slippery slope is just going to be there, right? Absolutely. And now these provisions, like you had mentioned there, Chris, that these provisions were taken away toward the end of either 2020 or 2021 during the COVID-19 restrictions by the Liberals. I believe, and I'm open to being corrected on this, but I believe for third and final reading that not only did every conservative vote against those amendments, but the NDP did too, because the NDP thought it was too far, too much. Wow. The block, that's saying something. Yeah, the, block, the block voted with the liberals on that one. That's on the second legislation, not yep. the first one in, in 2016, but the second one four or five years later. So now that all those safeguards are gone, and there's been some jurisprudence coming out of Quebec in the lower courts saying this should be opened up to minors. It should be yeah. opened up to people struggling with mental health. Mental because health that's not an irredeemable inclusion. situation. My colleague Liz and I, we have a podcast very similar to yours called The Stinking Albatross that was so baptized and named by uh, Peter McKay when he said that the reason why Andrew Scheer lost the election was because his social conservatism hung around his neck like a stinking albatross. And he went to go <laughs> on and lose that leadership race, Peter McKay. In yes, he did. Spectacular fashion. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we were talking about this the other week because there is a transsexual, indigenous, male to female person in Alberta, I believe, who's a little bit older than me, so mid-30s, who said that they were pressured to go through with full surgery back in 2009 in Montreal. So like we're talking 15 years ago almost. Wow. Hates it, regrets it, because the person was, you know, 20 years old or whatever at the time and can't cope and applied for government assistance and dying and got accepted. So now you have the Trudeau liberals not only pressuring young people dealing with very, very complex issues when it comes to sexuality to get permanent surgery, but once they want it wanna, doesn't work out, once it doesn't thought. work out, yeah, we're just going to kill them off. Wow. So that's the situation that we're in now. So I don't know if that answers yeah, your question seriously. or not for the background, but yeah, it just makes it darker. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so, and, and I guess so. This wow. sorry, sorry, well, it, it does make it darker. But use a mathematical term. Now we've hit the inflection point of the curve, because now I believe that not only is there because of all these stories are starting to percolate and legacy media is talking about it and they are talking about generally in a very responsible way i believe that the time is going to be coming sooner rather than later and again this is the importance of having as many pro-lifers elected to the house as possible because the ndp voted that way on the amendments to that bill i can guarantee you that there was a lot of pro-life conservatives talking with their colleagues across the aisle about it in the ndp caucus I believe we're coming to an inflection point specifically on this issue of assisted suicide in Canada that in the next year, two, maybe three, the electorate is going to be very, very open to the idea of not only do we not go forward with these proposed amendments from the Liberals in these lower courts in Quebec, but we roll back what we already allowed, maybe to the point that we maybe probably shouldn't have this at all and just focus on palliative care for people who are suffering in the dying process. Wow. Sweet. So you answered my, my next question was, which of the two do you think are closer to being overthrown? So you said assisted suicide would be closer to being done away with? I think because with assisted suicide, we haven't had it for that long. It's much more, 
I mean, with an abortion, less embedded into the culture. I well, guess. with an abortion, you don't see it as much. And I know there's good work, and it's controversial. But I know there's good work that the Canadian Center for Biophical Reform (CCPR) does, where they go door to door with people to convert them from being pro-abortion to pro-life. And one of their most successful things, whether you agree with it or not, and I just go by the numbers, and the numbers are the numbers, is saying this is what an abortion looks like. Yeah. Uh, and people are like, that is absolutely, up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe we shouldn't allow this. The thing about abortion is that it occurs in the womb. It's not as in your face as with assisted suicide. So I have a buddy of mine who's a paramedic out in rural Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan has one of the highest rural populations proportionally of any province and state in North America. And so I believe, now this could be different now, but I believe if you want to get assisted suicide in a hospital, you have to go to Regina or Saskatoon. I don't think they do it in places like Yorkton and Moose Jaw and Balfords and stuff like that. But you could get the poison concoction applied to you by a nurse practitioner. But when you go in to see the physician in Saskatoon and Regina, it's day zero, hour zero. So he's going to come up with this poison concoction for you. That's going to be applied to you day five, hour 16. And when you're dying in the dying process, your body's up and down, up and down. And so my buddy, the paramedic was saying, yeah, we've got a bunch of botched euthanasia calls, a bunch of botched assisted suicide calls because they applied the poison in the old homestead back in rural Saskatchewan. And you think that grandpa's just going to go to sleep peacefully and never wake up again. But really what happens because his body's in a different place than when you visit the physician, he is throbbing at the mouth and convulsing for three or four hours. So they call 911. Jeepers. I guess the tough thing in terms of jurisprudence is that you basically have to ignore the Carter decision. And you have to say, either use the notwithstanding clause or just pass a piece of legislation and say, I dare you, Supreme Court, to rule against this and just keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There is one interesting in the 41st paragraph in the Carter decision. Sorry, this is getting super into the weeds. But this came to attention from a supporter of ours who is a lawyer back home in Manitoba. And we were having lunch back in the beginning of December. And he said... Scott, there is a clause, 41st to 47th paragraph in the Carter decision, where the Supreme Court of Canada basically created a test to, oh, let me try and think of the term. It is, sorry, you're just going to give me a quick second. Stare decisis. Stare decisis means that you're keeping, basically, the Supreme Court of Canada is not necessarily bound by a previous Supreme Court decision per se, But the convention is that if a previous court has already ruled on this specific question, we're just going to defer to that court decision. And that is known as stare decisis. So the decision remains the same. Stare meaning to stagnate, decisis decision. So obviously with Carter, you had to overrule Rodriguez in a very dramatic fashion. So the Supreme Court of Canada gave themselves a test in that paragraph of the ability for them to overrule on stare decisis. And what my lawyer friend was arguing that a future government, be conservative or otherwise, could use that test and say, we're just going to apply this test to your decision as parliament because oh, we are supreme, which is true in our British, yep. British North America Act. Parliament is supreme. And we're going to make this test for you. And this test fails. Ergo, we're passing this legislation and we no longer have government assistance in dying, which I thought was very intelligent on his part. Yeah, that is really intelligent. We spent a lot of time together. I think you've done a great job at building the case for why you guys exist and and, uh, the value of what it is that you do. So I just want to spend the last couple of minutes asking because I would say that and we talked about this a little bit before the mics went on, is that our hope in all of this and where we kind of get the standard, right? If you're going to say this stuff is wrong, it's wicked. Chris, you called it dark, right? It's wicked to kill children in the womb. It's wicked to have a 21-year-old person who's struggling with gender identity, the state to come along and help kill them. We would obviously be standing on the foundation of God's word, God's law, God's character. I know you, before we turn the mics on, you're a practicing Catholic. And so... um, Thank you for saving that to the end. (laughs) People say to the end. Yeah, there you go. But one of the things that interested me about your whole movement Mm -hmm. is that it's devoid of any sort of religious, I don't want to say motivations, because obviously your personal motivations are your own personal Mm -hmm. motivations. But as you scour your website, it's not decidedly Christian. Mm -hmm. So talk to me, I guess, a little bit about why. 
why you think that that is strategically helpful in terms of what you're trying to accomplish? Well, you want to build a broad winning pro-life coalition on these two issues of abortion and assisted suicide. And so we just focus on the life issues, which are abortion and assisted suicide. Like people die in those two things. And hundreds of thousands in Canada, for example, like you're timing us here, Chris, we're almost at an hour. That's 11 abortions that have occurred in Canada on average since we started this podcast episode. That's incredible. It's a very high abortion rate in Canada. It's, it's something like 20 to 24% of every pregnancy in Canada ends in an abortion. So, well, hold on, let's not gloss over that. Sure. 20 to 24% of every, every pregnancy in Canada ends in an abortion. Now, that's not high as Russia, which is over 50%, but it's wow. sure as hell a lot higher than other places like the United Kingdom, like the United States, like Australia, like New Zealand, because those places actually have legal restrictions on abortion for that very reason. Not every woman who gets an abortion gets it because her life is in danger or she's been sexually assaulted. You're talking about 2 3% at most, probably less than that in those cases. And now in Canada in 2023, I'm unaware of any situation where an abortion has to occur to save the life of the mother. Thank you for medical science. Yeah. Most abortions occur for socioeconomic reasons, convenience, yeah. things of this nature. So when you're building that broad winning pro-life coalition, especially in Canada being, like you said, one of only two countries in the world, being the other North Korea, where we have no legal restriction on abortion, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> and even if I were a beggar, I would beg everyone who is pro-life to be part of our broad winning coalition. So that includes Catholics, it includes Protestants, it includes people who are religious or not Christian, like Orthodox Jews, certain sects of Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, and includes people who are not religious. So for example, we talked about the 6 million pro-life Canadians that are 100% pro-life. Yep. But there's a broad array of, specifically on abortion, pieces of legislation that you can introduce into the House of Commons or provincially into a legislative assembly that isn't going to legally restrict abortion rate from conception, but uh, would reduce the abortion rates that the vast majority of Canadians are behind. For example, 84% of Canadians are behind legally restricting sex-selective abortions. Over 70% of Canadians are behind legally restricting abortion after 24 weeks gestation into the third trimester, which we know happens in Canada because it literally happened this morning in yeah, Montreal. That's right. So I would submit to you that not 84% of Canadians attend Mass or Divine Liturgy or Divine Services every Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation. It'd be much smaller than that. So who are those like other 60%? Yep. Well, they're not religious or they belong to another religion. So that is why we want to include them as much as possible. The other thing, too, is what I like to tell people is while my faith as a Catholic brought me to the pro-life issue, it's the science behind the issue that makes it so blatantly obvious that enrages me to the point that I do this for full-time work. So I just want to throw a couple, because I want to equip our people as part of what our podcast is all about is equipping our people to engage with the culture. So they might be listening to this and saying, so thankful for all the work that you do. And I would encourage them to go back to your website. We'll link it in the show notes, get involved. I want you to take the next couple minutes, just equip them for conversations. You said it's the science that kept you here. So I know that there's much higher level conversations that go on about this stuff, but I just mean your average, and I have this conversation with a lot of my neighbors, a lot of people who still use clump of cell arguments, right, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So just equip our people really quickly, give them three minutes of just a couple of things that they can have in their back pocket when talking about the life issue scientifically that will help them convince skeptics or those sure. that they're talking to. Yeah, well, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I'm not an apologist. That's not what I focus my work on. And that's not what our organization does. But there are other organizations out there that are excellent educational organizations in Canada. First and foremost of all, I would argue, is the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, CCBR. So yeah. their website is endthekilling.ca and they have a pro-life classroom there where you can go and you can get all the apologetics yeah, and it's you need. phenomenal it this is, is yeah. yeah samuel say jonathan yes. van maren oh, okay. Hannah Bay. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so actually jonathan's coming over for supper tomorrow so oh nice yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we've I gotta, had him on the podcast too Great yeah guy. i gotta make sure i uh, take the fish out smoke salmon tomorrow <laughs> so yeah well time yeah and, 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 and a fellow smoker oh yeah you yeah. too yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. gotta try we gotta do another it. podcast on that there you go Whole, yeah, yeah there's it's a, it's a lifestyle change real, right? real, real quick and we'll get back to probably apologize but real real quick my wife for my birthday my birthday's in july she got me a smoker for my cocktails i'm particular to old fashions oh 
We got to have a whole nother <laughs> podcast, brother. All I know, right. I know, yeah, I know right now we just, language. we just have water here right now, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe we can do a bit of a cana soon. Yeah. But <laughs> a- anyway, so she got me this, this smoker for smoking drinks and I finally used it for the first time last night. We had some people over because we're trying to get this all in before Lent comes. And <laughs> yeah. uh, all you drinking in before yeah, Lent. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming quick and hard and fast. So you got to get ready. And um, yeah, Protestants don't have to worry about that problem. <laughs> just so you know, we, we drink right through Lent. Oh, okay, so. good. Yes. You pick up the slack. <laughs> yes. um, don't worry, we do that after Easter too. But <laughs> anyway, so I had to keep it in the dry bar and it was in the cupboard that doesn't have like a glass opening to it. So it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And finally I brought it out last night and I'm not quite mastering it yet, but you know, maybe Jonathan and I can give it a whirl go. tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Let, let and, me know. Anyway, Jonathan, great guy. He's yep. the director of communications for the CCPR. And I would argue, and I don't think I'm overstating this, that I personally think that CCPR has some of the best apologetics and the best educational work out there for any pro-life educational organization, not just in Canada, but in the Anglosphere. Yep. United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, United States, I think they're the best. Yeah, they're phenomenal. We'll link uh, their website in the uh, in the show notes as well. And I know there's lots of people in our church who are involved in the whole thing as well. And I just want to take the last minute here to endorse for you guys. So I, this is you've been working with Garrett, is that right? Yep. Yeah, so Garrett Van Dorlin is seeking the nomination of the Conservative Party of Canada in our church's riding right here in Oxford County. And he's pro-life, pro-family, pro-freedom. And I met with him just a couple of days ago, got to know him, asked him a bunch of tough questions. And I really believe that he will be a strong pro-life advocate. Our seat, right, it's up because our current MP is uh, is resigning and retiring. And this seat has been, you might actually have the exact stats. I'm going to say this seat has been conservative for at least 30 years. I think the only time that, and that's a big if, if it went liberal, it had been in 1993 with the vote split. There you go. Because there were, there were a bunch of hair down here in southern, southwestern rural Ontario that, like Middlesex, Lambton, like yep. all those counties, they went liberal during that election because of the vote split between the reform and the progressive conservatives. Right. But I, that would be like the, the only, only time. time. Yeah. So, so it is highly likely, I've said this to a few of our people, whoever you are going to vote for in the by-election, vote your conscience. But I would say sign up for the conservative party so that you can nominate Garrett because chances are whoever gets the nomination will end up being the MP in our writing. Yeah, it's that the real election, to be brutally honest about it, the real election is the nomination. Right. That's the case for a lot of writings across Canada. And it goes the same on the other side for the Liberals. Eventually, there's going to be a leadership race in that party. Yeah. And, and we, we are preparing for that, just so people know, just so other Liberals out there know. <laughs> and the island of Montreal is almost predominantly liberal federally like not even the block can really get onto the island so i would love to see a bunch of chaldean catholics or coptic orthodox although there's a lot of lebanese syriacs in the island of montreal to run for liberal nominations because it'd be great if we had a contingent constantly of 20 pro-life liberal mps from the island of montreal to complement our hundreds of pro-life conservative mps yeah absolutely i have, Sorry, one, I have one more question it has right, nothing to do with what we talked about All though right. All right, you refer to yourself as a practicing Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> so why do you like why do Catholics refer to themselves as practicing Catholics? Wouldn't non-practicing Catholics just be not Catholic? No, because by virtue of your baptism, you are Catholic. Okay, it's like being born into a family. Like you might not want to be part of that family. You might want to do anything with that family. You might actively hate and disdain that family. By your blood, you are part of that family. And because we as Catholics believe in the baptism that there is an ontological change of the soul, an indelible mark upon the soul that can never be changed. You can't unbaptize yourself. So you are always Catholic. And by the way, we believe also that all people who are baptized in the name of the Blessed Trinity, so this is where the United Church gets a little bit iffy, and (laughs) explicitly in the name of the Blessed Trinity are also Catholic by extension. Interesting. So we paid about we'll, we'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to have you back sometime and talk about all that stuff because I would love to talk about how somebody with such I would say socially conservative values maintains such a strong Catholic faith when your pope right now doesn't share a lot of your conservative social values. Popes come, popes go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Anyway, yeah, you're a great sport. I love this. I would just say to our people because I know we have a lot of hardcore abolitionists out there, and I would 
say I am an abolitionist as well. Abolition is the end goal. For now, I would say run all the plays. Do everything that you can to save babies whenever you can, however you can. Keep fighting to end abortion in our nation. But in the meantime, run all the plays and work with anybody that you can because there are children dying and there are all kinds of people that the state is coming in and helping die as well. So we run all the plays here with the goal that uh, one day abortion will be defeated in our nation, and we have a blessed assurance that that's actually going to be the case because Jesus Christ will reign over this nation once again. So You say lots of abolitionists, eh? Sorry, yeah. Yeah, uh, I encourage those of you who are abolitionists out there, which I have lots of time for that, to definitely read uh, on w- William Wilberforce and yes. all the wonderful things he did in Westminster to end Amen. slavery. Absolutely. And and the minute one thing got accepted, he w- introduced the next bill. I mean, yeah. he was a he was hardcore. Pitt the Younger said he was the best prime minister that they never had. Yeah, absolutely. Before we ha- sign up, why don't you just say your name again, say your website so everybody hears it at the How end. How get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. Please, please reach out to us. Uh, if you have any questions or whatever, you vehemently disagree with something on this podcast, you can reach out with that. Or if you want to try but, one of his old fashions. Yeah, exactly. You want you want some recipes? I'm here for that too. Yeah, you can reach out to us, www.itstartsraynow.ca. We're with the organization called Right Now. My name is Scott Hayward. I'm the president and co-founder. We're all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Twitter can get a little spicy sometimes, so that's a fun one to follow. I'm told that we might be on the TikTok soon. I don't know what that means. I'm uh, not sure what that means either, yeah, but yeah. fair enough. The Chinese, the Chinese communists have our information, <laughs> I guess that's what that means. But yeah, anyways, lots of ways to get a hold of us, reach out to us. But the biggest thing I'd say is just join up on our website, right? Because pro-lifers don't know what they don't know. And on our website, you're going to know who your most winnable pro-life candidate is in every election. And you can make your decision with all the information available to you. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.